Welcome back to Interview with the PD Pod. This is Nick Fletcher, and I am honored today to have the opportunity to talk with Stu Weinstein. Stu probably doesn't need any introduction, uh, but for those of you uh, who are less familiar with his life's work, it's about as impressive as one could imagine. Uh, he is longtime professor at the University of Iowa, uh, having joined the department back in 1976. He has been the president of basically every organization in our world with an acronym, the Academy, the AOA, the ABUS, POSNA, the Bone Decade. He's been the past chairman of the orth- Orthopedic Pack. He's also a not only two-time winner of the Kappa Delta Award, but a two-time winner of the Russell Hibbs Award. He's the Arthur Hewn Memorial winner. Uh, he has authored three major textbooks in our world, including Pediatric Spine, that bears his name, Level and Winners, and Turks. And he's one of the few uh, orthopedists who will probably ever publish within the trifecta of New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and The Lancet. Aside from that, he's probably one of the most lovely human beings you'll ever meet. He's incredibly dedicated to his patients, to his life's work in children's orthopedics, an incredibly humble guy. So, uh, needless to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. I could have gone on for hours with him. He was really terrific. Um, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, I hope that everybody's having a great summer. And I look forward to seeing you at the SRS this fall or at IPOS this winter. So thank you again for your support of this and to Carter Clement and the podcast team for the production of this. And please enjoy this really, really wonderful, wide-ranging conversation with Stu Weinstein. Well, Stu, thank you again for the opportunity to talk to you today. This is something that I've really looked forward to for a while. I sort of have this wish list of people who are out there, and you are at the very top of it. So uh, I I really couldn't appreciate this more. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. So I I was curious. I was looking through your background, uh, and it's, it's always interesting doing this type of interview process, because I'm sure if I was a professional interview or interviewing movie stars, I'd be able to find a lot of dirt on people. But most of what we can get off of people is off of their websites. But uh, the the background that I know of you is that it seems as though you're a Midwest guy. You trained uh, in Iowa, obviously, but you went to University of Illinois for college. I'm curious a little bit about where you grew up and then what your childhood was like. Um, I sort of made the assumption that you grew up in the Midwest, but maybe I'm wrong there. Yeah, I grew up in, I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, my my dad was a salesman. My mother was a housewife. Uh, neither had actually finished college. My dad had dropped out of college to join the Navy just prior to Pearl Harbor, then spent the next six years in the Navy as an officer. And then he actually stayed in the Naval Reserves through the Korean War. So, uh, and my mom was a housewife. So uh, neither of my folks had finished college. And I grew up in a very happy home in Chicago. I have a, a younger brother who's an orthopedic surgeon as well, Jim Weinstein, who was at Iowa for a while, then at Dartmouth. Uh, and I have a sister who's an occupational therapist uh, living in the Chicago area. Uh, I went to undergraduate at the University of Illinois with the goal of becoming a lawyer and going into politics. I've always had a, a deep love for government and politics, and so I majored in political science and history. But um, this was during the Vietnam War, and, and uh, near the end of college, in my junior year, I wasn't really sure about my plan because to go into politics would require um, a, a different road than I was prepared to 
uh, embark on at that time. So just in talking to my folks one vacation, they said, well, do you ever think about medicine? You can help a lot of people in medicine, maybe more so than politics. And I went and visited my family doctor, who happened to be a general surgeon. And uh, I realized that this could be a, quite a meaningful life. So I took all my electives as pre-med, and then I went to uh, the University of Iowa for medical school, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. I you know, had several choices, but I chose Iowa because a friend had gone there. And it's pretty much uh, like going to college again, a very <laughs> collegiate in atmosphere. There were medical fraternities, just like undergraduate fraternities. And it's a small town. And the members of our class were really, really close. The faculty was great. We formed lots of close relationships. And um, the interesting thing for me was that I hadn't considered orthopedic surgery. Like most people in orthopedics, I was an athlete. I played ball in high school, football, baseball. But I had some mentors at Iowa who were internists, and they were so good. They, were, they, they inspired me. And so actually I, I matched in internal medicine, uh, went to the University of California, San Francisco for that. But just prior to graduating, the University of Iowa being very uh, – general practice sensor required all students to spend time with a general practitioner or a family practitioner. So after I'd already matched in medicine, I spent a month with an internist and I came home and I told my wife, you know, this is the most boring month I've ever <laughs> spent in my life. I cannot do this for a living, but I already matched in medicine. So, um, yeah. I kept that kind of secret when I went out to UCSF and but then I had to make a decision because Iowa called and said that I could come back in the ortho program, but I, they needed to know right away. And uh, so I fessed up to the chief resident at UCSF and the chairman of the department and said, you know, this is where I think my calling is. And they said, well, we understand, not happy about it, but if you change your mind after one year, we'll take you back. So, so then I went to Iowa for orthopedics and, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think things have changed a little bit in terms of how people are selecting their uh, their careers now. But um, so, what kind of student were you? I mean, you know, I uh, again, obviously, knowing you uh, only sort of peripherally and and through a lot of your talks and research and whatnot, I've always had the sense that you are a very curious individual. I think that the uh, the research that you've taken on sort of speaks to that, especially given the scope of it. Um, were you? Uh, a really strong student? Were you somebody who's always sort of curious and poking into different things? Um, what kind of student were you? Well, I think as an undergraduate, I was just trying to get good enough grades to get into medical school. But once I was in medical school, I really became engaged in the, uh, uh, not only the academics where I did quite well, but, you know, as an AOA and, and, uh, and, and was at the top of the class, but I also was involved in medical politics at that time because I, was president of my class, and and I organized all of the healthcare students, nursing, pharmacy into a, a coalition, even in in those days, so that we could improve the learning experience and improve uh, inner collaborations. Back at that time, so I, I was always interested in those things. But I was I was always a good student, and I, I was, you know, fortunate that I. Um, you know, probably spent too much time studying, but I was, <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> always focused my whole That's life. Great. 
So you went back to Iowa, and Iowa at the time, uh, I, I mean, as it still has, is, is a uh, real powerhouse of a program uh, in orthopedics and had some really big names. Obviously, Dr. Ponsetti sort of in the peds world was there. But, you know, uh, my my assumption is that a peds fellowship wasn't sort of uh, readily available. And so I'm sort of curious uh, how you found your way into pediatric orthopedics, uh, which obviously has been a perfect fit for you, um, especially in a department that had so many other giants and other aspects of the field? Well, the department at that time was uh, uh, small, but it had five major figures. The chairman was Carol Larson, who uh, had come from Boston and was in practice with Smith-Peterson and O'Frank uh, and did uh, develop the spinal osteotomy and was heavily involved in cup arthroplasty. Mike Bonfilio was a tumor surgeon from the University of Chicago, part of uh, the tumor mafia, which included like Bill Enneking, Gene Mendel, uh, people all trained at the University of Chicago under Hatcher and Femister. Adrian Flatt was our hand surgeon, a world-famous hand surgeon. Dr. Pansetti, of course, and um, then subsequently uh, Dick Brand came along. Dick was a hip surgeon. He eventually went on to uh, be editor of CORE. But these people, in my eyes, were giants. They were you know, we didn't have a relationship like I would say I have now with the residents where I, you know, I know about their families. We talk about, you know, what they're doing this weekend and what they think about the ball game and things like that. It was a pretty uh, uh, distant relationship with all the faculty at that time. And yet originally going to orthopedics, I thought, well, again, this athletic thing, most people in orthopedics are somewhat athletically inclined. I thought, I'll, I'll go into sports medicine and and I realized after my sports medicine rotation, yeah, the surgery was interesting, and but I hated what went on with sports medicine. I didn't like special treatment for people. And, and about that time, when I started working with Dr. Ponsetti, it was pretty clear that, that he was looking for someone to work with and to, you know, eventually take over his practice. And the department um, made it known to me that, if I would like that I had performed well enough that they would, they would um, bring me on the faculty. And I don't know if any of the listeners are baseball fans, but you know, the, like the greatest team ever was like the 1927 New York Yankees with Babe Ruth and Luke Eric. And, and I felt when they offered me a job that they were asking this nobody to play in the Yankees. And I didn't care if I batted ninth that I hopefully would work my way up in the lineup, you know, get to third or fourth someday. But just to be able to play with your heroes and be on the same team with them was a, a dream come true. So when they offered me a position, it was something I could not turn down. And you're right about the fellowship aspects because fellowships were, there were some available, but not too many. And what their deal with me was is that I could go, because I was entered in spine and, and pediatric hips. So they sent me to uh, Toronto for sick kids to work with Bob Salter for a month and just observe and be in his clinic. And then another month with John Hall in Boston, who was, you know, the, I would say the thought leader of the day in, in the seventies. And then each year they would allow me to spend time with other spine surgeons because no spine surgery was done in, I in Iowa, the entire state Oh, wow. A pediatric spine. Yeah. You know? And so it was my job to basically start a spinal deformity service. So the next year I went to uh, spend time with Wood Lovell at the Atlanta Scottish Rite. And then next year I went to spend some time with Bob Winter in Minneapolis. And 
being perfectly honest, I'm a self-taught spine surgeon, even though it's my, my living, because I never took a fellowship, and I had to learn to do anterior approaches myself. Uh, so, you know, I still do my own anterior work, and, and all these things that we do today, which are quite complex, I feel fortunate that I was there at the ground floor when we were just using herrings and rods and putting patients in cast before surgery because we were fearful they would paralyze them by putting a rod in. So we put on, put them in traction and then we would use and eat what we now call an EDF cast, you know, for yep. early onsets. And we cut a hole in the back and put the Harrington rod in with them already corrected. So I feel fortunate that I've started at square one at the infancy of, uh, of pediatric spinal deformity surgery and, and carry that through today. So I didn't have a fellowship and I'm self-taught and I just went to visit people who I respected and admired, spent a week with them, more, more so to learn how they think about things because I figured I could master surgery. I always felt comfortable in the operating room, but I, I just need to know how they think about things and how do they approach patients and are, is their decision-making flawed or is there questions that come to my mind? And after each visit, I would leave with reams of papers of questions about the decisions that they made that made me think, gee, I've got to answer that because I'm not comfortable. So that's how I eventually got started in, in, at the department and how I got started doing uh, spinal deformity. But my second love is also hip dysplasia, and I, I, I still enjoy uh, baby hips, DDH. Sure. That's uh, so. Uh, you and I share those two interests. Those are sort of my two areas, and and my uh, my sort of uh, muses were Greg Mezio when I was at Vanderbilt, and then Dan Cicado when I was in uh, in fellowship and uh, at TSRH. And I think that it's it's fascinating to look at your career in those two areas because you've been you know so instrumental in sort of helping us understand those areas. And I'm going to get back to there to that in a second. I am sort of curious, though, as somebody who uh, is uh, originally from the Northeast and now lives in the Southeast, the Midwest, especially for some reason, Iowa, has this sort of almost mythical uh, uh, way of making us feel as though the patients are different than perhaps than the, the patients who I take care of. They, they tend to be, you know, incredibly humble and, and uh, hardworking people. And so the, the, the papers that have come out of your institution um, are, are so interesting to read and, and sort of reflect upon. I'm curious if you can talk to somebody like me as an outsider about what it's like to practice in Iowa. Well, it's like the movie Field of Dreams. Is this heaven? <laughs> heaven? No, it's Iowa. And, I, and I, you know, we, we have a, it's not as diverse a population as you would have or anybody else probably has listening to this recording. But one of the reasons I've always stayed here my whole life is these are wonderful people. They're hardworking. You know, Iowans don't want handouts like from the federal government. They're mostly farmers. And they, they just want to give have an opportunity to, for example, sell their products, and they are appreciative of good medical care. We, you know, my practice is obviously a statewide and also a little bit of Western Illinois as well, and they they just have a a an appreciation of good medical care that that you know when you ask them to come back, they come back, and it's not like you lose them for follow up and and. You know, I'm not buddy buddy with my patients. I don't. I don't like that aspect. But I, we have a respect. They respect what I'm doing. I respect their 
adherence to treatment, you know, to, to do what we, we ask them to do, like wear their brace, uh, et cetera. And they're just, uh, I think people who choose to live in Iowa have that kind of um, Iowa nice um, attitude. So I, I, it is a bit different because I have, like most people have traveled around, have been to different clinics and we have a, I think we're lucky. We have a special group of patients who are extremely grateful for care. And, and even when I did follow-up studies, you know, when I saw patients of Dr. Steinler, for example, who, you know, died in 1958, and I would have some of these people come back from all over the world, and they still remember Dr. Steinler fondly, and what a wonderful figure. <laughs> Same with Dr. Ponsetti, you know, though they're always bringing up the doctor who took care of them, and how grateful they were to have been able to be treated at Iowa. So it is, it is a different mindset. I, I hope it continues. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure it will, um, at least for for the foreseeable future. Um, well, I want to get back to the what your point that you were mentioning uh, a minute ago about your interests, um, and you know, it, it's it's really fascinating to hear your story about sort of where you started truly on the ground floor of, of spine deformity, and I, you know, it's I have this this view of spine now where we're doing three column osteotomies and operating on two year olds with you know reasonably complex types of instrumentation and whatnot, and I think that the um, you know, sometimes we have this triumph of technology over reason in terms of how we're managing it. And you mentioned the fact that when you started out, you know, obviously you didn't have neuromonitoring and you were putting a single Harrington rod in and putting a cast in. But I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that ground floor that you, t- you were talking about, uh, about what it was like to be sort of at the true cutting edge of uh, not just the treatment, but really of a field that was coming up um, in spine deformity, especially one that does have such grave consequences if things go wrong. Yeah, I think as I look back, it was a privilege. At the time, it was pretty nerve-wracking, I would tell you. <laughs> you know, and, and for most of my life, I, I practiced alone as far as spinal deformity. I didn't have a, a colleague, I didn't have, except my adult colleagues. So you know, I was always on my own. And, and what I'm grateful for at the beginning in those uh, uh, formative years is to actually have someone like John Hall, who I had, again, visited, just visited. But he was so kind to me. In those days, if I had a case that I just wasn't sure of what to do, in those days, you had to make duplicate x-rays, send this whole package of x-rays with a letter you can't just flash a PowerPoint and, yep. and send it to him and have him look through those, give you an opinion, write a letter. And someone like John Hall, who I am eternally grateful for, he's a big hero of Mike Millis and some other people who trained in Boston, was so wonderful to me in my formative years. So I knew that I was not in the desert alone, that I could get a canteen quickly through John Hall. And then... Um, and then I became, you know, as I knew more and more people, I, I could run ideas by people. But it was, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't have spinal cord money. We didn't do the wake-up test. Wake-up test wasn't even described till like 1983. And so I'd have been in practice uh, seven years before the wake-up test. And it's a bit frightening with the fear that you could paralyze someone while they're asleep. And But the evolution of technology has been so phenomenal. But I, I feel fortunate that I grew up with uh, the basics so that I could hopefully, if someone wants to listen, I could <laughs> learn from my mistakes and, 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 and the things that I uh, had to learn the hard way. So 
you know, nowadays you have a fellowship of lots of fellowship mentors like at TSRH or Rady or Sick Kids or something like that. You've got a lot of people to fall back on. I had nobody to fall back on. Dr. Ponsetti didn't do this. And and uh, I, I depended on the kindness of strangers, as uh, as one movie uh, line goes. But Dr. Hall was a, a great influence on my life because of his kindness, which I've tried to emulate when people seek out my help today because I, I feel that I have a lot of experience and I can share that if someone wants to listen to it uh, or take advantage of it. So I think it was, it was quite intimidating as you go from Harrington rods to Harrington Lukey to Lukey rods. I thought when I saw Lukey rods, I thought Eduardo Lukey is, is totally insane. Why would you, put, <laughs> you wouldn't put wires in the spinal canal. Yeah. This scares the heck out of me. But then, you know, subsequently, you know, I did like 800 Lukey's in neuromuscular primarily, but it's 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 having a respect for other people's opinions and giving it a chance to see how it plays out and and uh, you know then going from hooks all hooks to screws to hybrids to you know much more complex things like you said vertebral body resections and and stuff like that but I I feel quite fortunate that I have the experience and the one thing that I don't think many young surgeons have is the experience of anterior surgery and and. You know, you oftentimes get an access surgeon, which I don't use. I use myself, but I, I have a healthy respect for what's in front so that when I'm working in the back, if I'm doing a, a three-column osteotomy or something in the back, I know how close the aorta is. I know where the vena cava is. I know where things are, and I have a, a maybe it's an overly healthy respect for everything in the front that I can't see. So I, I hope that uh, the, the younger generation will learn these techniques, even though they're, you know, not as much, not as useful today as they were a long time ago. Not as well, necessary. it's interesting you bring that up because obviously one of the approaches to anterior spine surgery that's coming out these days is to do it thoracoscopically for tethering. Obviously, thoracoscopic surgery is not new, but thoracoscopic tethering is relatively new. And as somebody who graduated in 2010, you know, my career has basically been, oh, you put a pedicle screw in everything and uh, posterior spinal fusion works basically, I mean, some variant of it, whether it be a, a expandable rod or a, 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 a definitive fusion works basically for everything. And there's been a lot of, uh, of innovation along the lines of, you know, tethering or uh, distraction-based devices like the Apifix, which for me is totally foreign, right? I've done one mm-hmm. thing for 10 years, but you're sort of painting a picture that every few years really some sort of new thought came out and you were adapting and you were learning about it. I'm sort of curious if you could talk a little bit more about that, like what the actual process of that was. The, like you said, you you were faced with this Lukey wire and going, why would I ever do this? Um, and, and how you sort of went about not just sort of saying, well, I'm just going to do a Harrington rod for everything because that's what I know and really trying to innovate along uh, along as you went. So, uh, well, that's a really good question, and I'll tell you my overall philosophy is I always feel quite comfortably comfortable being one fad behind. Yep. I, I don't need to be the cutting edge of technology because I only want to do what I know to be safe and have good outcomes for my patients. So, you know, when, when the Lukey came into existence, I went and visited some of my friends who were doing it, and I watched it, and and saw the kind of corrections and how it actually works, you know, and, 
and I thought it would have some merit, particularly in neuromuscular deformities. Um, and, and I will say, like with modern technology, so the, the tether is, uh, you know, it's not new. I mean, anterior spine surgery was done. Oh, I did it in with the Dwyer and uh, the Zilke, and those things were done in the, the 80s. So, But those were done open, not through a thoroscope. And... Way I would look at tethering is in, and I have a health. I took the course. I'm quote certified, mm-hmm. um, but I look at tethering a little bit with suspicion because I see wonderful researchers like Peter Newton showing a forty plus percent revision rate. Is that acceptable to me? And I understand also how eight plates work in the you know for genovarum or genovalum. That's pretty obvious to me. The power of those growth plates is pretty phenomenal. I'm not convinced that the growth plates of the spine are very similar to that, that they have this kind of power. So I, I look at tethering, and I, anybody who's listening who thinks I'm a heretic, I, I would say in 10 years, everybody's going to be tethering or nobody's going to be tethering. That's the way I look at that. Uh, the Apifix is another one I had the chance to review uh, when it was developed you know, in Israel, and and it has some interesting properties. But once again, I... I my practice is such that I was kind of the only game in town for most of my life for the state. And I am unwilling to, on my own patients, do things that I, that might work out. I have to be something that for sure will work out and that they won't have to have another operation if it doesn't work out. So I, again, I'm always like one fad behind and I, and, and I would never view myself as the, uh, you know, I'll never be asked to talk about technique, even though I have, you know, thousands and thousands yeah. of patients, uh, because I'm not out there at the, the cutting cone, so to speak, of technology, and I'm uh, a little bit slower to adapt new things. And also, if I can just interject, you know, yeah. about you, you mentioned nowadays everyone has a, a every, every pedicle has to be uh, cannulated, but, you know, I work in Vietnam every year for the last 15 years, and the patients have to pay for the implants. And they always ask me, well, how many screws do you need? How many do you absolutely need? Because the patient pays out of pocket. And, you know, you can get a really good result with a lot less screws than we currently use, like in North America. And you just have to look at the the group from Hong Kong or any place where they the, the where cost is, is an issue to see that, yeah, we... We probably abuse technology. I'm, I'm not saying we don't get great results, but you know we can get by. I think with uh, maybe a little bit less. But yeah, that 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 line. And my partner Bob Bruce uses the te- triumph of technology over reason, having to put a pedicle screw in every pedicle. And obviously, the work that Noel Larson and Dave Polly have done in the Mimo uh, project, I think, is, uh, is sort of showing some of that stuff. Uh, you know, along those lines, though. Um, Again, having the opportunity to look back at sort of your life's work of, of research, I think one of the things that you're probably best known for is looking at the natural history of this of this condition. And it's it's interesting hearing you speak about innovation over time, but also looking at the population that that you had the opportunity to look at for 50 year follow up. And I'm curious how your thoughts have changed in general about the treatment of spinal deformity, knowing sort of firsthand what the long-term outcomes for a lot of the patients are and how perhaps maybe we are a little bit too aggressive at times. 
So uh, that comes, just to give you a background on that, so Dr. Steinler who founded our department around 1913, and that continues even to today, 2021, 2021 is that, you know, we always ask the residents whether it's Junoverum or it's a ACL injury, what's the natural history of this? Because if you don't know the natural history, you have no idea what you're, uh, if you're making a positive or negative difference. So in our program, understanding natural history has uh, always been, is, you know, the basic uh, compass that we follow. And then we look at how do treatments affect natural history, have they influenced in a positive or negative way. So my experience of following this cadre of patients uh, uh, over the average was 51-year follow-up. There's, two hundred, I think, 226 patients, if I, if I recall correctly. But, you know, it's a small group, and I will be the first to admit that you could criticize it. This, you know, this is a, a group that was culled from uh, Dr. Steinler's practice that were not treated, and we're fortunate enough to that I, uh, in 1976, when I first started interacting with them, that I had them agree to come back every 10 years so I could follow them. And it's a very humbling experience to see people who, with the last follow-up average age, was like 66, and had really horrible curves. Yet to see that they actually had pretty productive lives. They were married, mm -hmm. they had jobs, they weren't disabled. So I have a pretty healthy respect for what can happen without treatment. What was very apparent to me in doing the follow-up and never failed to come up in discussions was their saying, I wish the treatments that are available today were available to me because I think the biggest concern was how they looked. Right. The cosmetic, or the, I won't say cosmetic, I'll say rather use the term psychosocial aspects of having a deformity. And obviously in the thoracic curves, you're, you're you know, affecting pulmonary function and, and we know that pulmonary function will decrease with age. So if you already have diminished pulmonary function from your thoracic curve, aging process will further diminish that. So in the thoracic curves, I think I feel really comfortable. In the lumbar curves, I do think they have more back pain. That's pretty clear. And, you know, my indications for surgery are pretty much the same as you would find across the country or around the world. But I do have a healthy respect and, and tell the patient that nobody has to have surgery. This is a choice. This is, and I give them this paper, this is what happened to people over their lifetime that didn't have surgery, and it may or may not happen to you. There's no way to say that you'll follow the same course, but you have these things to think about. And I never, we talk about surgery. I guess I would say I plant the seed when I'm thinking about it, but I don't sow it until the patient and family are ready to, to have it harvested. So I, I, I just feel it's my job to be their navigator, and I'm profoundly influenced by seeing these natural history patients who never had treatment uh, and how that influences my decision-making. And you'll see folks like Tim Ward, for example, who's followed another cadre of patients who have large thoracic curves, and, and he'll show, too, that they've had a pretty good life. So Again, I always tell them you don't have to have surgery, and it, but let's talk about what are the what are the pros and cons. What's the risk versus benefits? And um, but I am I, I I have this background of influence of seeing these patients, which 
always colors my thought process. And I, and I try to just be the navigator. I'm not trying to pilot their decisions. I just want to help them make good decisions. I think that's great. I was going to ask you about Tim Ward. So, so I'm glad you sort of brought that up. Um, and, and I think it's interesting because a question that comes up a lot in the, you know, 18 year old with a 54 degree well-balanced curve is, well, should I do it now or do it later? Um, and the, the, I think the third option that oftentimes goes, uh, unchecked is, should I do it at all? Um, and I think in today's, today's world where, uh, we, again, we've got all this great technology. We, we tend to assume that at some point you're going to get it done, but in fact, maybe you don't. Um, I think that, that there's probably some benefit. I'm 43 years old and I'm sure that if I told my wife I was going to have spinal deformity surgery now and miss whatever, you know, however many months of, of work, she'd say, I wish you'd done that when you were 18. Um, well, also the curves, also once you become an adult, then you're talking about glacial progression yeah. of the curve. So is this three-degree change real or, well, let's have you come back in another few years. Is it eight degrees? Is it really getting worse or not? So you, you bring up really good points, which I try and bring up in the decision-making process for patients about, you know, risks at doing it at 18 versus risks at 36 or 46 or 56 what's your life going to be? How does it interfere with your life? So I think these are really good questions. And I, again, I just feel I helped have to help the patient navigate these difficult situations. Well, that's great. I, I want to move on to uh, sort of your organizational work. Um, and again, it's amazing for those who have the opportunity to sort of look through the organizations that not only have you been a member of, but have been the head of it. It's pretty remarkable. The Academy, the AOA, the ABUS, POSNA, um, uh, amongst others. And I'm curious, uh, a couple of things because it's remarkable how much effort and work, even just being a committee uh, chair, which I am right now, uh, takes, but I'm curious how you got started in this and how do you balance that still, even, you know, as, as, uh, you've gone along with the rest of your practice, with your life, um, because it does take a lot of work. It's so rewarding, but obviously there's, there's some price to pay. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And actually, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people always ask that. But I would say that participation in, in the organizations which we are members of, uh, to me, has always been, it, it was part of my DNA. My parents uh, were both, I, you would call them today, community activists. You know, my mom developed a grassroots effort to get AP classes put into our high school in Chicago because we didn't have any. My dad developed a, a group of people who helped raise money so we could have better equipment for the football team as opposed to standard Chicago public issue, Chicago public mm -hmm. school issue, which was really bottom of the barrel, usually ex-Chicago Cub discarded things. And, and so they were always involved in trying to make the lives of their children better. And I just realized that from my parents that, you know, it's not in my DNA to be a sideline player and that I want to have a seat at the table. And, and I know that I won't always be listened to, but I, I feel that when my life is over, I'll feel good about the fact that I, I did try and voice, try and make organizations better, try and make the lives of orthopedic surgeons better and so on by being involved. With that said, it takes a lot of time because, you know, I've got a research effort. I've got to, you know, operate two days a week, see patients two days a week, one research day. And I've had that my whole life. 
but I also was very fortunate that I married a saint who, <laughs> who, uh, who you know, tolerated my being on the road all the time, tolerated my, my uh, causes and trying to make things better. And, and I think my son, I have one son who, you know, uh, also I think was proud of, is proud of me, I hope, but uh, realized that I was, was trying to do this for a good reason. It was never self-aggrandizement. It was always like to make POSNA better, AOA better, Academy better, the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons more responsible, uh, or a cause like Doctors for Medical Liability Reform or the Bone and Joint Decade. All these things were things that I could relate to, that I felt I could use my experience uh, in leadership to, to affect change. And so it made me feel good about these things. And you know, obviously, people who follow will judge whether I affect them in a positive way or not. But I, I just felt that I, I'm not a sideline player. I need to be involved, and I, I'm not willing to take what comes down the pike without at least having, uh, without having some say in it. That particularly includes healthcare and, uh, you know, stuff in Washington, which I was involved with for a long time. But the balance is really hard to achieve. How do you achieve? You know, your patients, when I was president of the academy, for example, during those three years, I was gone a minimum of 125 days a year, but yet I never missed call. I never missed because I took general trauma call for 37 years and spine, wow. spine call. I never missed a call. I'd make it up when I was home. I never missed a clinic because I felt it's not my patients. They could care less if I was president of the academy. They just want to know where the heck I am. They're needy. And can you answer my question? So I basically was always on call for my practice or my patients 24-7 my whole life. And, and again, I think I'm just fortunate that I had a good work-life balance. I, had a wonderful, have a one, I still have a wonderful wife. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's pretty hard to balance those things. But also, I think for listeners, you, know, you can't set out to be president of this or president of that. You have to... Engage in activities that you really enjoy and that you feel you can make a difference. And maybe something else will come up because someone took an interest in you, thought you did a great job, and maybe you should move on to this. And I would say there's nobody, uh, there's an old expression that a turtle on a fence post didn't get there by himself. <laughs> and uh, I'm the beneficiary of people who saw something in me that said that I, this guy deserves a leadership opportunity. Let's give him that chance. And these are people I never worked with. These are, I know who they are now, and I've thanked them uh, innumerable times for giving me opportunities. But I think you, know, you can't set out to be president of POSNA, president of the Academy, president of the AOA. But you should enjoy what you're doing, feel you're passionate about those things, and then you'll do a good job. And that your hard work will be noticed by somebody, hopefully, and you get another opportunity. So that's the story of my life, but I'm also fortunate that my, again, your home life is really important. I, I, you know, wanted to make it home to my son's activities and be around. And so I started front loading my day a long time ago. I used to start getting up at 3 a.m. so that I could get work done before I went to work. And then I, so I always front loaded my life so that I could be a, hopefully a good father and a good husband. But, uh, that's not for everybody. And, you know, everybody, some people need eight hours and that's fine, but. 
That's definitely worked for me. I tend to be a, a 430 guy, so um, I, I get that. Three, three is early even for me. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you know, nowadays the, the sort of up-and-coming leaders, whether they be of organizations like a, a Posner or a AAOS um, or just for the hospital, tend to spend a lot of time in, uh, you know, courses or leadership um, retreats or, or whatnot, sort of learning how to lead. But obviously this is something that you have excelled at because you've been a leader at so many levels. I'm curious where that came from. Well, I had in, in medical school, well, first of all, my parents were, as they say, community organizers and they kind of led small efforts in, you know, our community. But <clears throat> when I got to medical school, the, the, the chairman of urology was the president of the American Neurologic Association. The, pres, the, the chairman of neurology was the president of the American Neurologic Association, or whatever it's called. And we had a lot of leaders, and all my faculty that I work with in orthopedics were involved in their specialty society, which there were a few at that time. Dr. Flatt was one of the founders of the Hand Society. And, but they were involved with orthopedics, and they, they set an example for me and then, and then learning from people you perceive to be good leaders in whatever, whether you're on a committee and you look at your committee chair, whether you're on a board, you look at the board chair, you, you, you get to see leadership styles which are, um, influence you. And, and two of my, uh, my, the chairman of our department, Dr. Larson, and, and then Reg Cooper was my boss for most of the years. We're both presidents of the academy, and I, I learned a lot from them. They had very different leadership styles, but I, I learned a lot from observation of leaders and took things away from people who I thought were good leaders, and I dished all the things which I thought were, <laughs> you know, that, that you turn people off. And, and I think what you really realize about leadership is it's not about you. And Leaders who are all into themselves or what's next for them or, or building up their image or um, talking that I was president of this or that are not good leaders. They're basically totally into themselves. And really good leaders are into the mission of the organization they're working on and helping everybody who's at the table pours in the same direction and make that mission better or make that committee, make those committee charges executed uh, you know, more efficiently or, you know, benefit the society in some way. And um, looking at the big picture, and and, and uh, I think to me that's always been my mantra, it's not about me, never about me. And, uh, but I do, you know, I just put my heart and soul in everything I do because I, otherwise I'm shortchanging the organization who gave me the opportunity to lead. And, and that's a disservice as well. And you see that sometimes in people who are, spread very thin in lots of different organizations or trying to do this or that in the hospital. They're spread so thin that they don't really do anything well. So I think you have to know your own bandwidth as the terminology goes today. <laughs> you know, how much can you really handle and how much can you do well? I think if you take on something and your goal is not to do it better than the last guy who did it, then that's a, that's a mistake. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, I wanted to talk, uh, I've been fortunate enough to have previous POSNA presidents on this, uh, but I don't, I think you're the first who has served in your role through the ABOS and it's such an interesting area. Even in the past 10 years, 
since I got board certified, there have been a lot of changes in how board certification occurs. I mean, we've had subspecialty certification, web-based learning, amongst others. I'm curious about what you think about sort of the, the current state of board certification for orthopedists, especially children's orthopedists. And also, you know, if you were to sort of use a crystal ball, where do you think that might be in 10 years? Well, firstly, you know, high stakes exams, <laughs> like your certification exam, always strike the fear of God and everybody, you know, the residents and uh, taking their board review courses. So that first hurdle, I think, is really important. And the board does an amazing job in a, a good validated process. So that's, uh, that, let's put that aside and say that that, I think, will always be the standard. The maintenance of certification comes about, I think, um, I was involved a long time ago with this, but it's evolved over time because I think most of the boards feel that, you know, medicine is such a dynamic profession that's always changing and that, you know, how do you assure that, that members or practitioners keep up their skill sets or, or hone them down so that, because the boards are protecting the public. They're working for the public to make sure that, that the public is not harmed by people who are less well qualified. So the board certification is that uh, imprimatur of, of uh, competence. I think the evolution of the current way it's done is more by peer pressure. I think uh, as practices become more subject to regulations from the government, from the third party payers, and you're having to you know, alter your practices, uh, paperwork, the medical, electronic medical record, blah, blah, blah. The thought of taking a high-stakes exam in general orthopedics when you do pediatric orthopedics, that's all you do, doesn't seem quite right to the average person. The oral exam, which is actually the pathway I've always taken, um, I'm grandfathered, but I recertified four times voluntarily. (laughs) Uh, I, I certified in 77, so I don't have to take any other exams, but I did always take the oral because I felt that's my practice. I should be able to defend the decisions I made in those cases, uh, but it was a lot of work. And I, again, I think the the average orthopedic surgeon feels it's onerous and, and expensive. And so I think the pathway that's evolved now through the board and, and uh, is, 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 I think, quite good. And I think it'll be around for a while, but I, I don't see this as the end of the line. But I, I think as a profession, we have, are given a, a privilege to be able to self-regulate and if the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery doesn't take this seriously, which they always have, then somebody else is going to do it. Maybe, you know, the Georgia Board of Medical Examiners or, you know, the Texas Board will tell you you need to do X, Y, and Z. And you don't really want that. You want your specialty board to be able to be the ones who determine the criteria of, of uh, you know, have you successfully, you know, maintained your certificate over a lifetime. And I think the way it's outlined now is actually a pretty simple task compared to what people might perceive as more onerous in the past. But I'm a firm believer in, <clears throat> in the process, and I, I'm also a firm believer in the oral exam, but because that's, this, you know, just discuss your cases with six of your peers is, number one, it's a bit daunting, but number two, it's really uh, enfranchising to have that kind of discussion uh, about the decisions you made and maybe what you could have done better next time or what you learn from it. So people are intimidated by it, but I, I, again, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, but I think the, to cut to the chase, I think the, the pathway now for 
maintaining your certificate is, 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 is reasonable. And I think most people have bought into it and seem to think it's fair. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I mean, I, I like the breadth and the, and the variety of opportunities that are available. Um, I'm currently doing the web-based learning because I sort of wanted to see what it was about, and I like it. I actually like the fact that if you do the math, you can't just do the PEDS section. You have to do a couple other things, so it's sort of nice to branch out and get an opportunity to read. I think this year I did a couple of trauma articles. Last year I did a couple of spine articles, but it was, it was it's interesting, uh, you know, adult spine, and, uh, right. and I think that's nice. But I also... Um, had thought about, I think part of the reason that I, because uh, I, I just came up for a certification, part of the reason that I had decided to do that was that was the pandemic. And maybe in the future, I'll look into doing it orally, because I agree, it's sort of a, it's a nice process um, to, to go through that, uh, you know, the thought uh, exercise of, of making sure that your indications are still on point, even though you're 20, 30 years into practice. I also wanted to dive into your uh, work, and you alluded to it earlier, more on the political side of things and being uh, the head of the OrthoPAC, um, which is interesting. I, you wrote this incredible summary on medical reform crisis in, back in 2008 that I had the opportunity to read. And, uh, you know, you, uh, obviously you've had an interest in this, as you said, through your parents' influence, through your background of, of initially wanting to maybe pursue a life in either politics or law. But I'm, I'm curious specific to our organization or our field, how you got involved with that. And I was also curious if you could sort of highlight some of the successes that you think you guys have, have had or that you had when you were uh, involved in the, uh, through the PAC. Sure. Well, I think that I, I got involved with advocacy when I was, uh, uh, again, it was always a passion of mine, but formal advocacy on behalf of our profession when I was elected second vice president of the academy. This was like around 2002, 2003. And at that time, the medical liability crisis was in full full bloom. And orthopedic surgeons in Philadelphia were paying $400,000 for medical, medical malpractice insurance. Many of the carriers went out of business. Our carrier here in Iowa, St. Paul, went out of the malpractice business, so we became self-insured. So number one, Insurance was becoming a very big problem. The cost of medical liability insurance was astronomic, and it's not something you can pass on to the patient. And physicians were making decisions based on the wrong reasons. So, for example, um, you know, I'm not going to see this patient. They seem litigious to me. So I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry I can't help you. I suggest you see somebody else. Or you see someone in, in that comes in with back pain. You've done a a thorough evaluation, no neurologic deficit, x-rays are negative, and you want to prescribe some anti-inflammatories, exercise, well, you don't do that. You get a SED rate, a CRP, you get an MRI, you get a CT scan, maybe there's a spondy here. <clears throat> so this is this just wasteful spending in defensive medicine. So this was happening around 2002, 2003. And at that time, the AMA essentially did not listen to the medical, the surgical specialty societies, or even the high-risk ones like radiology, dermatology, you know, proceduralists. And we just got really turned off. We felt the AMA is not going to be, carry, be able to carry our water. So we formed our own organization, Doctors for Medical Liability Reform, which when you total up the membership of the organizations had over half the physicians in the United States in that group. And I was privileged to lead that, trying to get federal medical liability reform, saying, 
you know, let's let's do this on a federal level with Medicare and Medicaid patients, and then it'll filter through. But we got the bill passed in the House 11 times, but between 2003 and 2010, it never passed through the Senate. We never could get it through the Senate. So we we failed, but it was a pressing issue at the time. So that issue brought me to Washington every month. And then when I became, you know, the Academy's advocacy issues were were okay, but we formed a PAC in, in 1999 when the Academy formed a 501c6 organization. So previously, the Academy's Washington office was just geared to get more NIH funding. But as the government became more intrusive into healthcare, in 1999, the Academy formed a second organization, the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, which allowed us to be more active politically and have a political action committee. So in 2006, when I finished my presidency at the Academy, we were an okay pack. You know, we, we were doing good work trying to advocate, but they asked me would I take that on in addition to the Liability Coalition because I'd met so many members of Congress and the Senate and and had good relationships, positive relationships, because, uh, you know, I, when you go to Congress, you have to bring something positive. You can't keep complaining, I don't get paid enough or you guys aren't doing this for me or that for me. You have to say... We can make the lives of our patients better, for example, by them not having to go find an MRI somewhere down the street. If it's in our office, what's wrong with that as long as we disclose that we own that MRI? But the patient could go someplace else if they want, but this way they can have the MRI come back and see me in 15 minutes, and we can make a diagnosis, arrive at a treatment plan. So those common sense approaches to practical problems that orthopedic surgeons face in the real world. And I'm not saying my world, because I work at a university where everything is siloed and I don't own an MRI or have a, you know, it's run by radiology. But I, I could see the problems that the practitioners are having that are impairing their ability to give high quality care by things that the government was doing. So I decided I'll take over the pack. And I'm really proud that we became the largest medical political action committee in Washington, larger than the AMA, larger than any. And we only have 2.7% of all doctors in the academy. Wow. But I think that we're able to energize members to say, fine, you don't have to go to Washington. You don't have to go to Atlanta. You don't have to go to your state capitol. But you need to support somebody who's going to. You need to support the efforts at the state level, and you need to support somebody like me or support the PAC so I can get audiences with members of Congress. And whether you like the system in the United States or not, money is everything. And if you have a robust PAC that gives you access to members of Congress, it gives you the opportunity to present your point of view, because there's always somebody on the other side. And most importantly, it gives you a chance to build a relationship with a member of Congress. And so I was fortunate during those times to be able to develop many relationships, not only with my state delegation, but with many members across both sides of the aisle. And, you know, I would always present something positive. Uh, and, and you always have to view every argument in the context of patients. Is what I'm asking for going to make patient care more efficient and less costly? Not am I going to get more money because you think my services are so valuable. That's a losing argument. Right. Yeah, member, yeah, members of Congress don't care about your income. They care about patients in their district getting access and getting quality care. 
And so you ask about wins. Well, when the, the war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan was started in 2003, we developed a very close alliance with SOMOS, the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons. And we realized, number one, while these guys are in, uh, gals are in Iraq and Afghanistan, their families are left behind. We want to make sure their families were taken care of, number one. Number two, we saw that the biggest injuries were blast injuries from IEDs, and yet the Department of Defense budget has $110 million in it for breast cancer research, $10 million for neurofibromatosis research, which are just fine, but zero for trauma research. So, mm. so we developed a plan, and, and I used two of my, I used my state senator, a Democratic senator, Republican congressman, and we got another Democratic, a Republican senator and a Democratic congressman to write a dear colleague letter. And through my relationships with a congressman at the time called John Murtha, who was head of uh, defense appropriations, we were able to get in the Department of Defense budget, hundreds of millions of dollars for musculoskeletal research. Now, obviously, it's geared to the military, but obviously, there's a spinoff after that in civilian research. So that was a big win. And so far, you know, I think there's like $500 million for research. And your institution, my institution yeah. has DOD grants. Uh, that That's all amazing. came from that. And then you look at other things like sports medicine coverage. Well, you know, when, when our one of my colleagues, who's the Hawkeye team physician, goes to Illinois, they've got this 95 football players, coaches, cheerleaders, the administration. But if they want to mend, uh, uh, take care of one of these people, they're actually practicing without a license in the state of Illinois because their license is in Iowa. So they're, they're at risk to malpractice. So ability to sports medicine liability have you covered under your state license when you're, you know, going across the state line for a high school game coverage or not necessarily, you know, uh, division one, but those are things that came out through advocacy. And, and I think in advocacy, I think the listener should read, it's not only offense, but it's defense, preventing bad things from happening to you, uh, you know, cuts and reimbursements for this or that. It's also special teams. You're looking in the regulatory area, what regulations are coming down the pike from legislation that's been passed that are not good and that impair your ability to take care of patients. So sorry, there's a long-winded answer, but I think, but I think every member doesn't have to be an advocate or out there but the pack is a way for everybody at least to contribute. And, you know, you may detest the person that the Academy is giving money to because, you know, they're, they're on the opposite side on, you know, immigration or right to life or something like that. But, but the pack is only geared to issues which affect orthopedic practice right. and the patients we serve. And that's something you, you have to swallow a bit hard uh, and realize that that's the game. And, uh, you know, maybe it would be better if it was different, but that's the system we live under. Well, I still want to get to research, but I do have yes. a question because you mentioned <laughs> the liability reform, if you're okay on time. Um, yes, I am all the time in the world. Okay, great. <laughs> Where are we at currently? You know, Georgia is interesting because right before I uh, uh, I moved here, they had gone through tort reform and then it got dropped. And so, you know, it's we're sort of, back uh, without a whole lot of tort reform. And I'm curious where we're at nationally. It's something that I probably should have a better finger on the pulse of, but because it obviously affects us. The the article you wrote really goes into a lot of the challenges. And you mentioned that you, quote, failed, but uh, it was interesting reading about how you were building relationships to try to get the uh, tort reform concepts passed. Where are we now? 
I think it's variable. We still, we, you know, we still would like a federal solution for this rather than have a patchwork quilt of solutions around there, around the states. And I think it's unfortunate that it is that way. You know, basically, Republicans tend to be much more in favor of tort reform, not only for medicine, but for business. And Democrats tend to be a little bit more dominated by the lawyers in this country. And so there's always this this a battle. And even when you get good tort reform, like in California, it's always under challenge. It's always under threat. So I think we still would like to get federal medical liability reform, but it's a, uh, it's a tall order. So I think I just encourage the listeners to really uh, listen in your state, be, be attuned to what's happening in your state, because uh, right now it's pretty much a state by state issue because we haven't been able to crack the nut at the federal level. It's amazing re, uh, reading about how strong the, the trial lawyer, lawyers organizations are. I'm sure you've uh, got some <laughs> got some thoughts yes. about trial lawyers in general, but um, it's uh, it seems like it's a constant battle. It is. <laughs> it will be too going forward. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, let's uh, change the the topic a little bit to research, and I think for most of the uh, listeners out there, that's going to be an area that they probably are most familiar with your work in. Um, it, it, again, it was it was fascinating. You've got a real background and, and pretty high quality research. It, I feel like the things that you've done have not only been relevant, but really timeless. We mentioned the concept or the, the paper on natural history of uh, scoliosis. You've done this in hip. You've done this in early onset scoliosis and kyphosis. I mean, the study you guys did in 1993 is still the study that I, I cite most commonly. I'm curious how you've approached asking and answering such a wide array of <laughs> not only questions, but questions that require a lot of work to answer. Um, I mean, it's not just easy to just pull up long-term natural history studies on 50-year follow-up of scoliosis or, you know, is bracing really better than not bracing for scoliosis? I mean, these are really big questions um, that I'd love to have the opportunity to answer, but in reality, it's it's a lot of resources. It's a lot of time. I'm sort of curious how you've sort of, how you've approached that kind of thing. Yeah, well, the first, uh, I would say the first 15 years of my career was pretty much trying to answer natural history and and take advantage of this treasure trove of patients that we had at Iowa, thanks to Dr. Steinler and, and continued on with Dr. Ponsetti. So those were my first forays into answering to me, what's the fundamental question? What happens without treatment? And then in 1992, I was able to get an OREF grant because I was that was to do the final follow-up of the uh, idiopathic patients. And I was able to hire a research assistant. Before that, I was working by myself nights and weekends with energetic residents <laughs> and some visiting fellows periodically. But in 1992, I was able to get this OREF grant. And with that, I was able to hire a research assistant. And that's Lori Dolan. And, <laughs> and Lori, um, you know, up my game a thousandfold because, you know, she's number, number one, a wonderful person. Number two is you know, we have a great relationship, which is now into the 30th year. But, you know, she, she, she upped my game. And so for me, as I, I, I'm always interested in the big questions. And so I come back from POSNA or SRS and I, I hear the, quote, thought leaders make a statement about something and, for example, recommend this treatment or that treatment. And, and I kind of say, well, you know, what's the evidence for that? And, 
So I've got on my desk, uh, it's probably about seven inches thick, notepads of these questions from different meetings. And then, and then when I, you know, then I kind of look at some of them and say, what's the most pressing to my personal practice, which is, you know, spine and hip. And then secondly is, can I answer it? Do I have the tools at Iowa or can I get enough funding to support it? So the bracing one, for example, is one that always bothered me because I, you just see how uh, uncomfortable it is for kids to, you know, have to wear those braces no matter how cosmetic they are, you know, whether it's a Rego Chanel or some other brace. I mean, it's, it's still a brace and they're in the formative years of their teenage years. So I wasn't convinced they worked. And I looked at, back at the literature and said, well, there's no proof that they work. They were just, they were, the Milwaukee brace was adapted as a sort of a post-casting device so you can get out of your cast earlier. And then it was used for treatment of non-operative, uh, the non-operative treatment. There was no evidence that it worked or that it was uh, um, efficacious. So that was a big question. And I, and I, that was one that bothered me. And I, and I felt Honestly, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure they worked at all. So I thought, well, if they don't work, let's get rid of them and let's just follow patients until they need surgery. And I was lucky enough uh, to get an NIH planning grant and show that I could do the work. And then uh, we got, you know, the full NIH grant, a Shriners grant. And, you know, we had about $8 million to answer that question in a, in a high class level one evidence way. So I'm still, even today, so that was the brace, but I'm there are lots of things about braces that I don't understand still. How do they actually work? Uh, and, you know, I understand how an external fixator works on your tibia or how, how uh, you know, an eight plate works on your, your tibia um, or braces work on your teeth. I'm still a little uncertain about how braces actually work, but there's irrefutable evidence that they do prevent the need for surgery in a, a level one evidence study. But so those are questions. And then, I, you know, I'm really into early onset scoliosis now. We have a, a grant from RAF on early onset. And, and I, I wrote an article, I think it's in Spine, about thoracic height because it, to me, was never so simple as just measuring the thoracic height. So that's a, an article in Spine that people could criticize or do whatever. But I, I have to get these things off my chest. And I, I, I just can't accept what people say, nor can, should anyone accept what I say. You need to challenge it and say, is this guy right or is he all wet? And is there good evidence? And like DDH, what I'm fortunate about there is that Dr. Steinler started treating DDH patients, you know, the turn of the century by the best evidence protocol he could devise. He followed his patients and when it didn't work, he changed the protocol by the newest best evidence. Then Ponsetti followed his patients and I followed those patients, and we treat DDH nowhere the same way as Dr. Ponsetti did today, but it's based on evidence and study by following patients, seeing if protocols work. And so uh, kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I'm always look. I have lists and lists of, to me, things that are important questions, and I just want to live long enough to be able to answer some more. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, it's really remarkable. Um, and, and I want to I want to ask a little bit more about Lori um, mm -hmm. because you're, you're right. She is amazing. Um, and I'm sure in many ways you feel like that sort of just fell into your lap. But I'm curious what your day-to-day, week-to-week relationship is now. Because she obviously, you know, is incredibly knowledgeable in all the things that you're doing. Um, how does it work in 2011 or 2021? And maybe how did it, how does it work differently now than it did, say, 
15 years ago. We've always, you know, worked really closely together and I'm, and I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing guy and, you know, I, I have expectations of what we want to accomplish, but I don't really care when it's accomplished, if it's at two in the morning or it doesn't have to be when I'm at work. And, and Lori has her own schedule and she, you know, she knows what our projects are and her office is only like, uh, you know, 20 feet from mine and we see each other every day, except when I'm in the OR, uh, but we see each other a lot and we, we, she has a list of things we're working on and, and I come up with new ideas and, and she may tell me to, hey, let's finish these first before we move on to that. Or this is unrealistic. We, we can't do that with what we, you know, the resources we have. And we, and I would say our, our relationship has been really wonderful over the last 30 years. And I have nothing but the greatest respect and admiration for her. And she's a, she's a real partner and, and colleague. And, and so I'm, I'm very fortunate. As I say, you know, I might write the draft of a paper, but when it's after she re- rewrites it, it's much better. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I mean, I had a, a pre-Lori career and a post-Lori, and I, I wanted to continue. So um, I think it's one of mutual respect, admiration, and, and collegiality. And, and uh, you know, she doesn't have to follow my clock at all because I, you know, I have a... T- <laughs> Of a, an oppressive clock in my yeah. life, but you know, she, 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 and she has her, I encourage her to be, she's very active in so sort and other things. So, you know, I'm want to be supportive of her as she always is of me. And I'm, I'm very proud of the relationship we have. And I think, uh, I, I certainly, uh, am grateful to that NIH, uh, that OREF grant that allowed me to, to meet her and, and come in contact with her. So that's a, it's a, it's a blessing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the other things that I think that you've done so well that's really remarkable, and I remember talking with Tony Herring about the Perthes study group and uh, and actually, to some extent, why how he even sort of built the staff at, um, uh, at TSRH the way he did. He said, you know, I had a lot of questions and I didn't really know the answers, and so I wanted to get a lot of people involved who had similar questions and, and wanted to, to work hard to get the answers. But, you know, looking at the group of people who are part of Braced or, or you know, we're part of the CVBT study that you uh, alluded to on, on casting versus bracing for early onset scoliosis, it's not easy to get, you know, 10 collaborators. But in CVBT, you've got 40 collaborators um, uh, or 40 centers. <laughs> um, how, how does that work? I mean, how do you go through that process? Because that's a lot of... Uh, as as people would say, a lot of cats to herd. Yeah, it's very difficult, and I, I'll give Lori the credit for for herding everybody. I try and keep in touch with everybody on a reasonable basis, but she's in touch with all the coordinators. And you know, CV CVBT is a bit different because all of us see so few eligible patients in our practice because it's such a you know idiopathic, and you know uh, the age range is so small that you know, any center is only going to have a, you know, a handful of patients. So it is very difficult and it's a, it's a constant source of agony because, you know, for me, I agonize because I, we want to be good stewards of the money that OREF gave to us. And, and just like when we did braced, we knew the NIH was very skeptical. They, they even told us that we don't think orthopedic surgeons can do clinical research and we could spend a lot of this money doing 50 basic science projects rather than give you this clinical money. And they made us very aware of their skepticism that we could accomplish it. So we were, we really were, you know, mission driven there to show that, hey, we can do this. And we did it. And 
we're kind of at the same, yeah, obviously on a smaller scale with CVPT. So it's difficult, but I think it's a matter of, you know, interacting with everybody is not to be intrusive in their lives because you've got a lot of stuff going on, multiple projects, but we now for this one, we don't want to miss a patient. You know, we don't want to miss an eligible patient because there's so few and far between. But we just think there's some wonderful centers around the world and, and OREF doesn't uh, preclude us using uh, worldwide centers. So, you know, we, we've got New Zealand, Hong Kong, just to name a few. So it's, it's uh, I hope, uh, again, I'm one of mutual respect for us versus them. And we really appreciate their efforts and we want to be helpful. But it's it is it is a, a difficult chore, and I also feel personally as the PI a tremendous <laughs> sense of responsibility to the funding agency that I've got to get this done because we want other people to benefit from the OREF as a grant. Sure. Well, uh, so I, I wanted to sort of finish out. I was thinking about it um, when I was looking through your, uh, again, through your web page. Um, so my dad's a radiologist, um, and he graduated from medical school in 1970. Three, I believe. Um, so I have, uh, I'm not going to ask your age, but I have a sense of your vintage just because I know how old he is. Um, and he, but he retired 10 years ago. And so it's, it's fascinating. You sound as young as ever and, and, and as, as, you know, vivacious and interested in the things that you're, uh, that you're, that we're talking about, which are all really clinically related. I'm curious what sort of continues to keep you going when others have decided at, at your stage to sort of step away and, um, what do you enjoy now as you're sort of getting into the the latter ha- latter parts of your career? Yeah, it's nice if you say latter parts as opposed yeah. to the end. But uh, no, I, I you know I still derive great joy out of operating. You know, I still operate two days a week, and I see patients two days. I love seeing patients. I love trying to solve problems. I love doing difficult, complex surgery. I I take care of myself. By the way, I I, I jog every morning, and I ride road bikes on the weekend. So I'm, I'm also very much into taking care of myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't probably be doing this. But I, I love that aspect of my life. I love my patients. And I, and I love answering these questions uh, because they really keep me going. But I say it's the patients and the work. I, most people, I guess, get tired of operating after a while. Same old, same old. But I view they're not the same old. Every single idiopathic is different. Every neuromuscular is different. You know, <laughs> tumors are different in children. So it's not the same old unless you treat it as the same old. And then you probably should retire if it's boring. But to me, I get excited working with bright young residents and and going through cases with them and going, you know, the preoperative planning. And I I still enjoy, you know, talking to families and trying to, to help them. And I certainly have also great self-awareness of my skill set. And I think that's something that a surgeon always needs to have is, are you aware, are, are you, do you still have, you know, the reflexes, the um, fine motor skills to be able to do, you know, things like complex spine surgery. So I'm very self-aware of my abilities. And I think also, that, you know, my residents, and they certainly would be the first to tell me if there was some issue. And, um, you know, I guess the biggest thing during COVID, I couldn't work for seven weeks because they only took trauma and COVID patients. And I, realized how much I missed it. I can't live without it. And, and, you know, I don't have a second home. I don't have a, a boat. I don't have any orthopedics is my life and it's been a great life. And so obviously someday I'm going to have to figure it out and do something else, but, but I haven't got there yet. And I, I'm still energized, but by going to conference and, and listening to people 
pontificate about things which I think is baloney and, and see, hey, you know, challenge that because I, and, and I love when people challenge me when they say, I don't understand what you meant by this, or I don't understand, you know, what you mean by the neolimbus or something like that, the hip, or why do you do so many open reductions? I mean, what are your criteria? I don't agree with this, but to, to have that discussion and to maybe stimulate some younger person to want to answer questions or you know, go into pediatric or be, just be a good clinician is the things that keep me going every day. And I realize when I go on vacation, it's not like, God, I wish I didn't have to go work today. I'm excited to go to work after vacation. Yeah. It's, it's good. I had a great vacation. Now I'm ready to, to go at it again. So I guess those are the things that keep me energized. And I realize I'm there are very few of my colleagues who are still at least operating. I did stop taking trauma call and spying call a few years ago because they made me so the next younger person could stop. But but I enjoyed that too. Uh, I, you know, I I'm consider myself an extremely lucky person to have had a life that I've enjoyed and still continue to enjoy. Well, that's definitely inspirational. My wife, I think, sort of assumes that I'm going to take a a similar path uh, down the road because I've, you know, I also missed everything during the seven week lockdown. I probably could have used about a two week lockdown, but not seven weeks. That was, that was far too long. So well, Stu, this has been everything that I'd hoped for. It was just awesome. Um, it's, it's great to get a chance to spend an hour plus with you and to hear your thoughts on so many things. And like I said, I think your uh, experience and, and uh, involvement is really sort of inspirational, certainly for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other people who are going to be listening to this. So it's, uh, it's really great to, to get a chance to talk. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I feel privileged, and I and I uh, hope that some you know that listeners may have gotten something that they could take away to be useful in their life. But thank you very much. Absolutely.